0: So this weekend, we are once again turning to John's Gospel, chapter 5, if you've got a Bible. We are in a series of messages called All is Grace. So I wonder, have you ever been in an impossible situation where you felt like you were between a rock and a bigger rock, a rock and a boulder, I suppose we could all tell stories in which we find ourselves in impossible situations not sure what to do. As you think of your own story of impossibilities, I suppose there are emotions that are attached to that. For some of us, it's the emotion of fear. For others of us, it's the story. It's, a, it's the emotion of anger. For others of us, We feel hopeless. This weekend in the Gospel of John chapter 5, we are introduced to a guy who finds himself in an impossible situation. It's a situation that he's been in for decades with no hope in sight. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals now there is, in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well, he said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see you're well again, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. In John chapter 5, we are introduced to a man. He is unnamed. He's simply referred to as an invalid. The invalid, the title invalid, had become his identity for his whole life, for 38 years. His entire world, his persona, and his identity was defined by a mat. Something he laid on year after year, decade after decade. His whole life was landlocked to a six by two square inch of earth. It's really all that this man knew. Now, the term invalid actually means weakness. So we assume that his weakness was his legs. He couldn't walk. We don't really know. The scriptures don't say. But we knew he really had some kind of physical issue because he could not leave his mat. And he spends all of his time at this pool that John introduces to us in chapter 5, the pool at Bethesda. The word Bethesda actually has two meanings. Uh, the word Beth means house, and that is, uh, the second half can either mean mercy or it can mean shame. In the Hebrew language, there's all these multiple meanings for different words, and so this man is laying at the pool, at the house of mercy and shame. Now, some believe... For years, that this was just a story that John made up in his gospel because no one had ever heard of or seen a pool that had five colonnades in Jerusalem. Now, an artist's rendition looks something like this. It's what they believe it might have looked like. But then, this place was actually discovered and excavated. If we look at the next picture... I've been to this place. This is a real place, and so John isn't just making up some story about a five colonnade pool somewhere. This place actually exists in Jerusalem, and there's a legend that surrounds this pool and many like it. The Greeks created a cult around a god named es- Scipulus. He's a pagan god of healing. During the Hellenistic period, Greeks built temples to this Greek god of healing. These ancient healing centers that were surrounded by natural springs. So the ill, the disabled, they would congregate at these pools, these regional Greek healing centers, and they would drink the water, they would bathe in it. Because in simple terms, the Greeks believed that the waters were possessed by spirits. And when the spirits stirred the waters, the first person in was healed of their infirmity now natural springs bubble up and so it was believed when the bubbles appeared that a spirit or an angel was stirring the water and the first one in is healed and the last one in you're a rotten egg right i don't know but this man in his desperation he's been forced to turn to the greek gods looking for a miracle because when you're desperate like you ever been desperate When you find yourself in an impossible and desperate situation, you will do just about anything for a solution. Now, keep in mind, in the days that this man lived, there was no welfare system, there was no Medicaid, there was no government plan to help you out, and all he could do was hope to someday get in the pool when the water is stirred. So it's to this scene that Jesus walks by. Now, Jesus is in Jerusalem for a Jewish festival. We don't know which one, but he's there to celebrate. And he comes walking by. He sees this man at the pool. And Jesus, Jesus brings with him a really pesky question, right? Because Jesus, Jesus is notorious for, like, asking hard questions, questions that make us think, questions that make us look inward. And so Jesus looks at this man. He's laying on his mat, and Jesus says to him, do you want to get well? What's interesting about this story is there's no introduction. Hi, I'm Jesus, the Son of God. That, that doesn't happen. The man has no idea who Jesus is. There's no introduction. There's not even any small talk like, hey, how's the water? Is it cold? Nothing. Jesus walks up to him and says, do you want to get well? I mean, that. think about it. Put yourself in the That's an irritating question. If you've been laying there for 38 years, now, I can't begin to understand what this man has been through. I mean, you ever, you ever been sick for a long time? You ever had a physical ailment or an emotional ailment, and you just thought, it's never gonna change? The discouragement that comes with that. Like My, my wife and I both have had chronic health issues over the years. And there was a couple of times in which for long stretches of our, our life, we just thought, we're just never going to get better. This is never going to change. And then well-meaning people come up to you or to us and say, hey, do you want to get better? Because if you do this, have you considered doing this? Do you want to get better? To which I wanted to say, do you like your face? How Because no. <laughs> when you've been sick a long time, Those questions strike a nerve at the heart of your soul. So this man has been unwell for four decades, and a stranger has the audacity to ask him, do you even want to get better? And he replies, sir, I I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. So think of the legend that surrounds this pool. When I try to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me, the man doesn't even answer the question. He doesn't even say yes or no. It almost seems, if I can say it in a non-judgmental way, it almost seems like he's making an excuse. Well, I can't get better because there's no one to help me. So Jesus says, do you even have a desire to get healed? Or, or you've been in this state for so long, it's all you know and you've actually given up. Because even, even in my worst of moments, I've, I've at least kind of tried my very, I want things to change. Like if I was in this guy's situation, look, I'm projecting here. Like I don't know what this guy's going through. But if I were this guy and I believed in my heart that if I could get into that water, I'd be healed. I would ask someone, I would say, I, I need you to push my mat right up to the edge. And I would lay on my mat. And even if I couldn't walk, If I was an invalid, the moment that I saw that water bubbling, I'd be like... So I was the first one in. I would do everything I could to be the first one in that water. But this man, he has reached this despondent state and he's basically given up. I can't get in the water, so others will just have to take care of me. There's no judgment here, but this is a really easy place to get. Because when you're in an impossible situation and you feel discouraged, you just kind of give up. This is how life is always going to be. And sometimes, sometimes we stay in a state of despondency so we can avoid responsibility. Now, again, I'm not minimizing this man's pain, and I'm not minimizing any pain that anyone in this congregation or viewing online may ever experience. But sometimes, I think we can all agree that we stay stuck, because let's be honest, some of us, we get stuck in a very small place. We can't seem to get out. But sometimes we get stuck because we don't lean into the responsibility it takes to get out. And I'm here in my heart. Sometimes you do all you can, and for whatever reason, it just doesn't get better, and I don't know why. Regardless, in this story, in a moment of incredible compassion, Jesus says, get up. Now here's what's perplexing about this story. This pool was known as a place of healing. So there were probably dozens maybe hundreds of people at this pool and the scripture only records one person getting healed this one man this is an act of just pure unexplainable grace I mean it really was all grace because Jesus gave him the answer to a question the man himself did not have the strength to answer when Jesus said do you want to get well I I can't because I can't get in the pool Jesus said get up And the man gets up, he rolls up his mat, and his world gets a whole lot bigger. I mean, if we place ourselves in the story, and you hear the words of Jesus, how would you feel? Would you feel insulted? Or would you hear, deep in your heart of faith, an echo of truth that might even sting? Now, these type of questions that Jesus asks, they come in many forms. Maybe the question for us isn't, do you want to get better? Maybe the question Jesus would ask us is, is it possible that you're wrong? And because you're wrong, you've landlocked yourself. Or maybe the question is, do you really want to be free from that addiction? That thing that's keeping you landlocked on your little mat because you can't stop looking or ingesting or whatever. Or or maybe the question is, like, are your motives really pure? And maybe it's because you have impure motives that you're still stuck in that little place of life. See, even when Jesus is asking these difficult questions, he embodies a way of being in the world that is profound. And we take note of this because as followers of Christ, those of us that call ourselves Christian, like our calling is to embody who he was and what he taught. Jesus had a way that was so full of grace. All that he did was grace, but it was also all truth. John tells us all the way back in chapter 1, our first week of the series, that when Jesus came, he was full of grace— but also full of truth. And we see both of these things in this story. When he heals this man, that was pure grace. The man didn't earn it, didn't deserve it, didn't do anything for it. Jesus just healed him and he got up and walked. But then Jesus comes back and he says to him, stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. Now, I think we can get in danger of like making a whole theology around this, thinking that every time something bad happens to us it's because we're sinning and that's not what Jesus is saying here at all. That's a sermon for a different day. I also don't believe that Jesus went that day specifically looking for that man. Maybe I'm wrong, but what I believe is that Jesus was always aware of the presence of the Father. And as he lived his life, he was always responding to the opportunities the Father placed in front of him. He even mentions that in a few verses matter of fact, after Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus goes to his disciples and he gives them this charge. the Gospel of Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. Now, for years, I thought that this verse specifically was like a call to go be a missionary in another country, and I'd lay at bed at night and say, Lord, please not me, I don't want to go to Africa, I like it here, I like McDonald's, I don't want to, like, I don't want to go. But that's not what this verse means in context. Because the tone and the intention of what Jesus said actually means something more like this. As you're going, make disciples. Like as you're living your life, as you're living your normal everyday life, have a way of being in the world that so reflects Jesus. Even the seemingly mundane and boring moments. Be aware that right in front of you might be an opportunity for life, for goodwill. The Father places right in front of you. Now, Jesus, in this episode, it gets him in trouble. Jesus seems to have a knack of getting in trouble with those in religious leadership because in, his, in their minds, this action broke one of the Ten Commandments. It's why Jesus said in his defense, my father is always at work to this very day I am working too. So Jesus is going. It's the Sabbath. But he sees an opportunity. And he says to the man, isn't saying, you know what, it's, it's a Sabbath, can you wait till tomorrow? He says, pick up your mat and walk in it. Once the man was cured and he walked, but not everyone liked it. The day in which this took place, verse 9, was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat. And walk. And they asked him, well, who told you to do that? Who's this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? And the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. Now we're thinking, what's the problem? The guy, there was a miracle, an actual miracle that happened. But it happened on the Sabbath, which was the day of rest. And there was a lot of rules concerning the Sabbath." Now in the Old Testament, God intended the day of rest or the Sabbath to be a gift. Something given to us by God in his grace for the rest of our bodies and souls. The scriptures even tell us that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the the Sabbath. But as this commandment developed over time, it meant that no work could happen on the Sabbath. And because the Old Testament isn't super clear on what constitutes work and what doesn't constitute work the Jewish leadership began to make all these rules surrounding what is work and what is not work so for instance picking up your mat and carrying it that's work unless of course you take your mat and tie it to your back then it becomes clothing and it is no longer work and so there are all these rules healing on the Sabbath was work I was in Israel a couple of years ago and didn't fully understand the full ramifications of the Sabbath until I was there. For instance, I stayed in a hotel, and the hotels that I stayed in had two elevators, like a regular elevator, and one elevator labeled a Sabbath elevator. I had no idea what that meant, and it seemed like they both operated exactly the same until I stopped stepped into one on the Sabbath. The difference between the regular elevator and the Sabbath elevator is on the Sabbath, the Sabbath elevator never stops and it stops at every floor. So if you get on floor one and you're going to floor three or even floor seven, you stop at every floor. The doors just stop because pressing the button to get to your floor is work. I'm not making this up. So you get on the elevator and you just ride and it stops at every floor until you get to your floor because you don't dare press the button because pressing the button is work. So the Jewish leaders are upset. Work has happened. A man has been healed. Said man is carrying the mat that he used to lay on. Now these guys, they probably know this man. If he's there for 38 years, I mean Jerusalem wasn't that big. He's been there for 38 years. They know he can't walk. They know he's an invalid of some sort. And then they see him walking down the street. And I can't imagine the scene, sir. We know you've just been healed clearly, but you're working. Now we look at that and we, we think, well, that's ridiculous. But we do it. Maybe not quite like that. But how often, let's... Let me be honest about myself. How often have I, how often have we, have, have we reduced a life of faith to rules, to obligations, and it robs us of the life that Christ extended to us. The Sabbath was meant to be a gift to God's people. And it was taken, this gift was taken and turned into an obligation with a whole lot of check marks around it. But I do that now. I mean, I, my life of faith can very easily get turned into obligations. I mean, listen, like this church, this church is a gift. And I can say that because I didn't start it. I mean, this church is a gift. I love this church. When I pray, it's a gift. When I worship, it's a gift. When I read the Bible, it's a gift. When I come, together with you and I sing songs of worship and I open. This is all a gift, but how easy is it to get turned into obligation? I can't tell you how many times I run into someone at the store and they say, Oh, Pastor Mike, I haven't been in church in a couple weeks. I'll be there next week as if I'm keeping track. <laughs> to me, this isn't an obligation. Like, to me, this is, and if I miss a Sunday here and there, well, then I miss, I'm not, like, there's not like a black mark going next to your name. <laughs> Religion very easily gets re- reduced to meeting a set of requirements, and I think Jesus knew that, and that's why Jesus did something profound. In the Gospels, there are seven recorded miracles that happened on the Sabbath, and Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. See, John wrote his gospel so that we would know what God is like through Jesus, so that we could be his followers and become like him. And so Jesus, I think, is making a statement as he works miracles on the Sabbath. He is more interested in spiritual transformation than he is spiritual transaction. Because there's a whole lot of transaction that happens. Now maybe, maybe in this story, you don 't relate to the man, but you relate a little bit more to the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Now this is what I, I do believe the Pharisees get a, a bad rap, right they really do, but if you understand culture, if you understand the scripture, the Pharisees i mean they weren 't necessarily bad guys, and if you look at if you look at the teaching of Jesus, Jesus was considered a rabbi, his teaching lines up most, more clearly with the Pharisees than any other of the religious sects. And and I think that for the most part, like, I think they were sincere. Most of them were, were sincere. They were just trying to reach out to God in some way. And most of us, in our sincerity, sometimes we reduce our faith to a transaction, to to rules to be followed. And we we create all these rules because we want to do right. We want to connect with God. But the rules can suck the life out of everything. I went to a very, very conservative college, a Christian college. And my college, this is 30 years ago, there's a lot of rules. I mean, some of the rules were like oppressive. Like, for instance, we, we couldn't wear shorts on campus ever. It always had to be long. And this is in Missouri, and it gets hot. We couldn't go to the movies. We could not go to a movie theater. Um, we couldn't dance. Uh, we could not drink alcohol. No, no, I mean, none of those things. Of course, no, no premarital sex, none of those things. And so there was like this joke that went something like this. You know, you better not have premarital sex because it le- could lead to something worse like dancing. That was funnier than you're laughing. I, mean, I wonder if there are some of us that were, we're unintentionally robbing the joy of faith. Like even as a parent. As a parent, do I rob my kids of the joy of faith because I have so many religious rules that it actually distorts what God is actually like? Or maybe you say, No, I don't really relate to the Pharisees, I actually really relate to that invalid at the pool because in my life what I'm currently doing is not working. When Jesus looks at that man laying at the pool, who had been languishing for thirty eight years, I think he sees more than sickness. He sees defeat, he sees resignation, he sees psychological and spiritual stagnation. He sees a whole a man whose whole world and whole hope has dwindled into nothing. A man whose mind and vision has so atrophied to the point that he can't even articulate what he wants for his body, his soul, or his future. He doesn't even answer Jesus' question. Do you want to get well? He doesn't say, no, he gets defensive, which I, which I get. His life has become one of scarcity. I have no one to put me in the pool. The world is unfair. While I'm making my way, someone else gets in ahead of me. He invites pity. He dodges Jesus' question. And in short, he avoids answering the question that Jesus actually asks, which really isn't a question about the man's circumstances at all, but it's a question about his heart, his identity, and his future. Jesus could have said, what do you want? Rather than, do you want to get better? Do you want to get healed? What do you really want? I can identify with this guy. Do you want to stand up? Do you want to walk? Do you want your situation to change? Or do you want to stand, sit, and lay out on that two by six square foot of life for the rest? Or do you want things to change? I don't hear judgment in Jesus' voice when he asks the question. What I hear is an invitation. Because Christianity isn't just a set of good teaching. It's a way of living. It's a way of being. And for Jesus... This way of being was always about people, much more than it was about rules and obligations. So this weekend, as we celebrate our nation's independence, as we light our fireworks and eat our hot dogs, and we think about the freedom that we have. Let's also be reminded of the freedom that Christ offers. This this is a story of freedom. Jesus gave this man freedom that could never be explained in words. A man who hadn't walked in 38 years now had a whole new lease on life because Jesus happened to walk by. So my prayer for us is that first of all, if you feel like you're stuck in a place that seems impossible, lean into Jesus. I don't know what he may offer, but it's better than a mat. And for those of us that gets so wrapped up in right and wrong and what the rules are. Let's remember, sometimes Jesus broke the rules so that others could find freedom. So God, today as a church, we hear this very simple story that you tell. But it's a reminder to all of us of just what life looks like when we walk with you. It is a life of transformation and change and freedom and hope and joy. And I'm so thankful for this story because you meet us where we are even if we don't know what it is that we want. You meet us in the impossibilities of our realities. You tolerate us even when we get so wrapped up in meeting obligations that we forget the life that we can have through your spirit. And So for that, I thank you. May we commit this story to our heart. In doing so, would you help us, oh God, to become just a bit more like you, I pray. Amen. Amen.